0: The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised.
1: When I became an internist, Dr. myself said, I want you to work for me and I want you to move across the street from the hospital. There was a house for $41,000. And I said, Doctor, as a resident, you don't make that amount of money. <laughs> so he said, you want that house? You are going to get a call from the bank and they will give you a good rate. Next day, the bank was calling me and I had a good rate in the house. And then I moved across the street from the hospital.
2: Chicago was Dr. Manulet's home for over 30 years. It's where he learned to speak English and more importantly, where he became a doctor.
3: And while he may have lived in the house Maisel helped him to buy, his real home sat across the street at Edgewater Hospital.
1: My two kids were born there, my wife was operated there.
3: He started at Edgewater
2: Hospital during the Dr. Maisel years, and worked there until it closed in 2001.
1: My wife complained that I spent more time at the hospital than time at home. But I can tell you one thing for sure, my kids never had dinner without me. I had dinner every night with them at the table.
2: And a hospital remembered for the fraud committed by a handful of doctors, Dr. Manulet went the other way.
4: Manulet, wonderful man, took care of everybody.
2: He was one of the good ones.
4: He was the best, I loved him. He
5: was probably
4: one of my favorites there.
2: Even his son Roger remembers how people would gush over his dad.
0: A patient treated by my dad would come up to me and be like, your dad saved my husband's life or he saved my life. And you feel a little embarrassed, but at the same time, you become very proud of your dad. He was very good at what he did.
3: But as things at Edgewater deteriorated, it started to affect Dr. Manulet.
6: By the time things were finally coming
0: to a head, it was definitely taking a toll on him. He saw this train wreck that was coming. And other than my mother, who's always there for my dad, I don't, I don't know how many people he was able to to share his concerns with.
1: And the closure was emotionally devastating. When the hospital closed, I had hypertension. I went through difficult times.
3: The stress from losing his home at Edgewater led to some uncomfortable conversations.
1: My kids were worried about me. And they said, Dad, it's time for you to retire. So, I worked in Chicago until 2002, and then...
3: He and his wife packed up their home in Chicago and retired to Spain.
1: Life here in Spain is cheaper than the United States. I am not a rich, retired physician. I live from my social security and my wife's social security.
2: While the pandemic canceled Dr. Manulet's 2020 trip to Chicago, he did make a memorable
1: visit the previous year.
3: That was when he told his son that he wanted to drive by his old home in Chicago.
1: You know, the hospital is not there anymore.
3: When he saw the piles of rubble and the gutted out shell of what used to be Edgewater Hospital, he said his goodbyes.
1: There was a dumpster. I told my son to stop the car. I went to the dumpster and I got a brick.
2: That brick now lives with him in Spain.
1: A little bit of Edgewater Hospital in my man's cave.
2: His man cave is a bit of a mini Edgewater Hospital Museum. There's old photos, plaques, and even a sign that once hung in the hospital's daycare.
1: I had the American dream thanks to that hospital. Those are memories, and that's what it's all about. I'm 75 years old. I am an old back, and, and since God, Alzheimer has not knocked on my door yet.
3: Dr. Manulet is a proud father and grandfather whose wife has been at his side for over 50 years. We
1: got married in 1968 that we enjoy each other. We go out and uh, we still hold hands. And our kid says that we belong to a museum. <laughs>
2: now that he's retired, he's found ways to keep busy and stay out of the doghouse.
1: What do I do? Well, I try to stay away from my wife. I don't want to bother her. <laughs> I like gardening. I am very good at gardening. My apple trees, olive trees, and the whole enchilada. And then we take long walks with my dog and visit the small towns around this area. Spain has a lot to see. It's a beautiful country and go back to the United States every year, you know, to visit the children and the grandchildren as long as we can. Edgewater Hospital is still in our hearts And, and that's what it counts.
3: When we revert back to the beginning of this podcast, we mentioned how a Google search for Edgewater Hospital turns up very little good news. For 71 years, the hospital served Chicago, but the internet is splashed with stories of its scandal-ridden final years.
2: Through our research, we contacted three to 400 people connected to the hospital.
3: We ended up talking with just over 100.
2: Now, when it came to those who were charged, like Peter Rogan, Roger Eamon, and Dr. Cubria, We were pretty blunt. We said, look, the internet is not very kind to your legacy, and this is an opportunity to share your side of the story or at least make peace with the past should you wish to participate. Only one person agreed to talk with us.
3: Of the doctors, one is now retired, one is dead, and the rest of them are still practicing medicine.
2: The tandem of Peter and Roger ran Edgewater Hospital for the majority of the 1990s. Peter Rogan was the number one guy, with Roger Eamon being the number two guy. Peter is the man credited with saving Edgewater Hospital, but at what cost?
3: The hospital resorted to massive Medicare fraud to keep the money rolling in.
2: If the hospital had just closed, history would probably treat Edgewater with the respect it earned under Dr. Maisel. But instead, it remains attached to the scandal that happened under Peter Rogan's watch.
3: While never charged criminally in the hospital's fraud scheme, Peter Rogan ultimately served about 19 months for perjury.
2: In 2016, he got an early Christmas present. The Bureau of Prisons website reports that Peter was released December 8, 2016.
3: He was then put on supervised release for three years, meaning he needed permission from the court or probation officer to leave the area.
2: Peter and his wife moved in with their son's family in Northwest Indiana.
3: This is the same son whose wedding Peter skipped while living in Canada.
2: I'm not sure what the word is to use here, whether it's coincidence or irony, but what remains of Edgewater Hospital sits at the end of the street where I've lived for years. And right down the street from where I grew up in Northwest Indiana is where Peter Rogan now resides.
3: We shared in one of our second opinion episodes on Patreon how we had a chance encounter with Peter at an Indiana grocery store. That happened in November of 2019 when he was still on supervised release. Most of the recent court documents about his case are sealed, but as of 2015, Peter still owed tens of millions of dollars to the government and Dexia Bank.
2: He turned 75 years old in 2021, he's a grandfather, and according to his LinkedIn profile, he's retired.
3: While we didn't expect Peter to talk with us, we also didn't expect Roger Eamon to talk. To Roger's credit, he proved us wrong. Peter Rogan didn't face criminal charges in Edgewater Hospital's fraud scheme, but the feds did charge Roger Eamon.
2: He pled guilty to funneling money to doctors in exchange for patients. He told the judge, words alone cannot describe the deep sorrow and regret I have. I will have to live with this guilt for the rest of my life.
3: Much like Peter Rogan, Roger never responded to our letters, emails, and voicemail.
2: We had just about given up talking with him When one afternoon, Stephanie called Roger, and much to our surprise, he picked up.
3: Roger again made it clear that he didn't want to talk about the past. He made a point of saying that he wasn't trying to be mean, but that he's a different man now. He politely wished us a nice weekend and quickly hung up the phone.
2: A few months later, Stephanie reached out to him again, and after some conversation, Roger agreed to talk with us.
3: We wanted to speak with him because all of the news articles on the internet showed one side of him.
2: The articles talked about what Roger was charged with. But in every interview with former employees, we heard something completely different.
4: Roger was awesome.
2: We heard he was the nicest guy.
4: Such a nice, professional, sweet man. And that... Everybody thought Roger was being paid some astronomical amount of money for taking the call.
3: The rumor at the time was that Peter had Roger take the fall and that there was a $2 million bank account waiting for Roger when he got out of prison.
2: So here's what we do know.
3: Roger testified that Peter promised to take care of him if he took the fall.
2: We didn't find proof that any money changed hands, but even if it did, Roger had to pay back the government $5 million as part of his plea deal.
3: Roger Eamon was sentenced to six and a half years in prison. He served about five and a half years.
2: Before being shipped off to prison, Roger was housed at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in downtown Chicago. This is the same facility where Peter Rogan was later held.
7: I was there for six months. There were 132 of us, and there were fights and brawls every night, and people beating each other up, and all these kinds of things. And there's gang colors all over, and frankly, I was
2: scared. He said he kept to himself and spent most days reading.
7: I'd hang out at the tables every day just reading the Bible, minding my own business. After about three weeks of that, um, a guy came up to me and says, um, I have some questions about God. Can you answer for me? I invite him to sit down. After, I don't know, two or three hours answering all those questions, he says, okay, I'm going ex- to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. So three straight days, three straight people all got saved. Then nothing for like a month. So one day I'm reading the Bible and the guy comes and he pokes me in the chest and says, I want what you have. And I thought he meant commissary. He says, No, I wanna I want to, I want you teach me how to study the Bible. So I said, Fine. So he and I had a Bible study, and the next day another guy came and another guy and then another guy. Within a week we had twenty, twenty-five men all sitting around a ping pong table studying the Bible.
2: He credits his faith for helping him through those dark days.
7: The day before I left, the men, mostly of other nationalities, had some artists and calligraphers, and and they put together this beautiful colored picture that only an artist could do of Jesus, and wrote some psalms and stuff, and all the men signed it, and they put wrapping around it, and I, I was crying. It's at home, it's my most treasured thing
2: I have. He then moved on to Oxford, which is a medium security prison near Madison, Wisconsin, or about three and a half hours north of his home.
7: I got a call from my daughter and she told me that my wife, Carol, she found her in a pool of blood on the kitchen floor and she's in intensive care. That was a blow to me. Because I couldn't I couldn't visit her, I couldn't call her, I couldn't tell her I love you or I couldn't do anything. I felt helpless. That was, that, that was tough.
3: His wife eventually recovered.
7: When I first got to Oxford Prison Camp, they had an orientation. They said, guys, we've got to lay the truth on you. If you have a sentence over five years, the divorce rate is over 90%. My wife came to visit me, despite how sick she was. It was a a three-and-a-half-hour ride each way, seven hours. She came every two weeks for four years. The last year she was really sick so she couldn't come. She didn't leave me, she didn't divorce me.
3: Roger and his wife celebrated their 51st anniversary in 2021.
7: We have strong marriage.
3: He and his wife still have date nights every Friday night.
7: I think that actually the time that I served at Oxford Prison Camp, when I look back on it, it benefited me in certain ways. I didn't like being away from my family and all those kinds of things. But the man I am now was really crafted in me when, during that time when I had a lot of time to think and ponder and decide what I was gonna do with the rest of my life.
2: Roger spent his time in prison exercising, writing letters and leading a Bible study group. He also had a job as the library clerk. It paid him $5.25 a month, but he emerged a richer man.
7: And so I viewed it as a paid sabbatical and I can learn and I, can, I, just, I began to help people when I was incarcerated. That's where I got the, the idea that there was a calling in my life that was bigger than what I had done before, that was more meaningful, that I could touch more lives.
3: On his last Sunday in prison, Roger got to choose the music during the ministry. He said the hard-nosed and stoic minister actually teared up and told him, I've never seen someone make such an impact on people here as you have.
2: After being released in 2007, Roger interviewed to work at a nonprofit called Westside Health Authority.
3: According to their website, Westside Health Authority helps neighbors and families build a better community.
2: Our
7: target audience are the homeless, the special needs, people with felony backgrounds, veterans, and the unemployed.
3: He was hired and started working there in 2007.
7: We're in the Austin community, which is a very poor community, high crime rate. Graduation rate from high school is pretty low, and people really need help. They're disenfranchised, they're afraid, they're scared.
2: Part of Roger's job is to help ex-cons re-enter the workforce.
7: 95% of our clients have a felony background.
2: When he shares his own story, it helps to lay common ground.
7: Because they know, I know what it means to be released and have no money, to not have a job, to be discouraged and all those kinds of things.
3: When he learned that lack of transportation was one of the biggest hurdles for his clients, he adopted an idea from his days at Edgewater.
7: So we decided to take an idea from the hospital and have case management on wheels. So we would take a van or a car and we'd drive to some of the transitional homes, halfway houses, and we'd take the services To the men and women who couldn't get to
1: us.
3: One of Roger's favorite success stories is a man he helped to find a job, even though that man had three felonies.
7: Then he shows up to one of our Christmas parties. and He says, I've written a check for $500. If you help me, it's my time to help other people. And so this is an example of what I'm talking about, where someone needed help, received the help, and now is giving back and helping others. I need purpose in life, and this has provided meaningful purpose to me, and I love it, and I love the people I get to help.
3: During a trip with his grandson to the Chicago Auto Show, Roger bumped into someone else he helped find a job.
7: So we're walking in, and there was a a lady, she was handing out maps and stuff like that, and brochures, and she said, Mr. Eamon, you found me in my first job. I've been working ever since. I wow. want to thank you. See, that was a moment, a teaching moment for my grandson. Like I say to him, look, it's not just about you. It's about people you help and how you can turn their lives around, for lack of a better term. Chicago is full of folks in need. And they don't know where to turn they know where to go, our services are free, all our staff, our primary reason to be here is not a paycheck, it's a calling, anointing, appointing, and gifting to help people that in need, and encourage them to then also be someone that can help other people.
2: Roger said that Westside accepts non-perishable food items, as well as monetary donations, to help purchase bus passes for their clients. We put a link in the show notes and on our episode page at ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com.
3: After 24 years working at Edgewater Hospital, Roger still keeps in touch with his former colleagues.
7: Since I've been released, we've all got gun, and just had a wonderful time. Many times we've done that. I've met Edgewater folks that are working, maybe as an x-ray tech or something. Hey, Roger, how you doing? So I, I see folks all over the place.
3: But not everyone is happy to see him.
7: I've had one or two people that don't like me, but I understand.
2: He remembers standing in line at a store, and someone shouted at him. It was a former employee. This person yelled, you cost me my job.
3: He said he still has nightmares over it.
2: Yeah, everybody likes everybody. When he thinks back to his time at Edgewater...
7: The general feeling is is that... um, he really actually did good work in terms of health care at Edgewater Medical Center. He really did.
2: But he recognizes that not everyone has moved on.
7: There are people who need closure on it and that to better understand, you know, where we're at and why we're there now. You know, I, I think the truth of it is, is this. While I did some things that I shouldn't have done and I regret those and I, I served my time and paid my penalty for that. I believe, you know, what I did at the hospital, at least from what I'm told by, when I meet, go to these dinners and so forth, that I'm respected by and loved by most of the staff there, because I think they know that I gave my best when I was at Edgewater. So I'm in a good place right now.
2: He never referred to Peter Rogan by name, but he did mention one giant what if.
7: To be honest with you, I believe if, I had a different CEO of the hospital than the one that we had, none of this would have ever happened. That person liked to play the edge of the envelope. And so it's unfortunate because when we were a not-for-profit, none of this stuff would have ever happened. When Edgewater got in trouble and ready to run out of money, this guy was able to swoop in and uh, buy the hospital for hardly any money. Knowing that there was a pension plan that was fully vested, and he could get money out of it right away, which is more money than the money he bought it for, knowing that the land itself was worth millions. And it's just too bad that that transpired, because I think that it hadn't. Edgar Medical Center would still be alive today, doing well. I might still be there, but it's just, it's too bad that happened. And I'm not trying to put the blame what I did on anybody else, because I'm a grown man. I should have known better. But unfortunately, um, I think if he hadn't been there, this would have never happened, frankly.
3: In a follow-up interview, Roger said he hasn't heard from Peter since the day he testified against him.
5: I've never seen him since. What I've had to do is to pray and ask God to help me forgive him. I've prayed for his salvation and his wife. Uh, salvation as well because when they subpoenaed him to give a recorded testimony and I read the transcript it was a pack of lies and so I I don't bear any bitterness at all anymore I did for a while though but but you know what happens when you you bear bitterness is that it eats you alive you know it's just not it's not worth it I'm, I'm in a good place right now and I'm very happy
2: In 2021, Roger celebrated his 75th birthday, and as cliche as it sounds, he shows no signs of slowing down.
7: I'm not the retiring kind.
2: His days of playing golf are now replaced by visits with his children and grandchildren.
7: I need purpose in life, and I have that. I have a reason to get up and a place to go. I'm faithful to this, what we do here. I'm not in it for the money, because not for problems don't pay much money. I'm not here for that reason. I'm here because I want to help people, and uh, that's very rewarding. I just want to do something that turns people's lives around.
3: Roger wants to keep working as long as he can.
7: You know, it's going to come a day that I, I can't work for whatever reason, and I'll I'll just continue to volunteer at my church. As a hospital administrator, I used to go to a lot of nursing homes. These residents had no one ever visited them; they're lonely. So one of the things I would like to do. Is go to nursing homes and meet with them and encourage them and give them hope and tell them that I love them. I care about them. Mark my words, I'm not going to sit around and watch TV.
2: And what would Roger today tell Roger from the past?
7: You made mistakes, you paid for those, but you learned from them as well. So something good came out of the bad, and that it's defined your character and who you are now. Because here's what I I teach our clients. Don't let yesterday define who you are today and tomorrow. The Bible says, do not dwell on the past. So what happened is that was an opportunity for me to move into something that actually I love way more than being a hospital minister. When I was incarcerated, that was a problem. You know, look all the good that came out of it. There's treasures in the darkness. Treasures in the darkness. So, so times when we go through these dark times, right around the corner is some of the best times of our lives. I've learned from the past and it's developed the kind of man I am today. And I, I'm, 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 happy with that. Yeah, I feel like the, the second season of my life is better than the first.
2: Paint the picture, Stephanie's been wiping tears out of her eyes. When Roger Eamon agreed to talk to us for this podcast, it changed the entire scope of what we originally planned to do.
3: I guess I just didn't expect that. We'll talk about what happened and why we're glad it did on this week's Second Opinion episode on Patreon.
2: We'll also share our emotional ride home from our interview with Roger and the two things that made us and Roger laugh the hardest.
3: For just $10 a month, you can unlock bonus content like that.
0: Just go to patreon.com slash If the Walls Could Talk podcast.
2: Of all of those charged at Edgewater, cardiologist Andrew Cabrilla received the longest prison sentence.
8: There was a lot going on inside of him that was never shared with me.
3: Fred Yurtstead worked with Dr. Cabrilla in the 1980s.
8: We were friends, and I could tell there was a lot of anxiety. He was very impulsive at times.
3: Fred sold pacemakers, and Cubria was one of his clients.
8: When I started working with him, I never saw any real red flags.
2: At the time, device reps had big expense accounts, and whining and dining doctors was perfectly legal. But when Fred took Cubria out for dinner, it was Cubria who always paid.
8: So there was a
3: part of him that was quite honorable. Fred even invited Andy to his church.
8: And I remember him sitting with me in this huge auditorium listening to Adolf the IV, speaking about men and honor and being the right kind of guy for the family and for your spouse. And he just started weeping. And that's the last I saw of him. Until one of my former colleagues called me and she said, you're not going to believe this. You need to get on Channel
2: 2. Investigative news reporter Pam Zekman was interviewing a woman who suffered a heart attack after her doctor botched her surgery when the camera cut to the doctor.
8: There was a picture of Andy, so something was going on.
2: Soon after that report, Cubria pled guilty to one count of racketeering for his role in the fraud scheme at Edgewater.
3: Cubria stood at a sentencing hearing, wearing a rumpled jacket, red t-shirt and baggy blue pants.
6: Kubria admitted in guilty pleas to the most awful kinds of conduct by doctors.
2: U.S. Attorney Thomas Bondi
6: explained. Kubria pled guilty to performing hundreds of invasive heart procedures on people who didn't need them. And two of those patients died. That's what he pled guilty to. They wanted to put Andy away for life.
2: But settled on 12 and a half years.
3: He uttered an apology to the judge, and that was about it.
6: Imagine what it takes to get a doctor to plead guilty to a criminal plea that takes his license away and puts him in jail for 12 years. I mean, that's ridiculous.
3: After the hearing, a prosecutor told reporters, I can't imagine worse behavior for a physician.
8: It's just really, really tragic.
3: Attorney Bruce Path met with Kubria in prison.
7: He seemed a lot more stable mentally and more at peace mentally when he was in prison.
5: He had lost so much weight.
2: Roger Eamon saw Kubria during a 2006 court trial. He looked terrific. Along with his appearance, he still remembers a conversation the two had about family.
5: He didn't have a good relationship with his children, and he tried to abide their affection because he had a lot of money. You know, vacations, golf clubs, and you know, all this other kinds of stuff. So he's telling me that he has now realized that his kids are visiting him all the time at the prison in Ohio and telling him how much they love him and, and, and all this stuff. And he said to me, they didn't want my money, they wanted my time. I can tell you this, he's kind of vilified and, and all these things, but there's also a soft side to him. And he was a very generous guy, gave money to charities and uh, just a nice side to him as well.
8: To this day, I don't know if Andy Cabrilla is alive or dead. I've heard rumors.
5: Dr. Andrew
2: Cabrilla developed brain cancer, and in 2012, he died in prison. He was 61 years old. His ashes now sit just steps from the mausoleum, where Dr. Maisel is entombed at Chicago's Rose Hill Cemetery.
3: One of the most surprising things we learned when following up with the Edgewater story was that three of the doctors who were charged are still practicing.
2: As of 2021, the website for the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation shows that Dr. Rao, Dr. Chris, and Dr. Barnabas still have active medical licenses. Dr. Rao was the anesthesiologist who got paid kickbacks to funnel patients to Edgewater.
3: Dr. Chris was the doctor who claimed to see 49 patients during a blizzard and then managed to see 187 patients on another day
2: in the podcast we didn't mention dr ravi barnabas by name but he also went to prison for
6: his role in the scheme dr barnabas pled guilty to just generating uh, hospitalizations that weren't necessary. What he would do is hospitalize people who didn't need to be hospitalized. He pled guilty to that. And when they were in the hospital, you ordered blood tests, x-rays.
3: We posted an article on the episode page of IfTheWallsCouldTalkPodcast.com about the interesting circumstances that resulted in the state of Illinois giving back Dr. Barnabas' his medical license.
2: After being released from prison, Dr. Barnabas went to work for a man named Raghuveer Nayak. He owned a bunch of Chicago-area surgical centers, but then got into some trouble with the feds.
3: Nyack later served two years in prison for paying kickbacks to doctors.
2: Nyack also reportedly offered to pay then-Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich $1 million for the Senate seat of Barack Obama. When Obama was elected president, Blagojevich had to choose someone to fill Obama's Senate seat.
4: I've got this thing, and it's fucking
2: gold. And that's when he tried to sell or trade that seat to the highest bidder. I'm just not giving it up for fucking nothing. All that to say, after getting out of prison, Dr. Barnabas went to work for a man who was later convicted of paying kickbacks to doctors and then reportedly bribed the governor. The last patient was transferred out of Edgewater Hospital in December 2001. It would be another 19 years until the first tenants of Anderson Point Apartments moved in. Anderson Point is the name of the apartment complex that replaced the hospital.
3: Getting to redevelopment was a test of patience and perseverance as countless setbacks hindered the process.
6: I love this building. I love coming here every time I come here.
3: William Roden Hornoff is the architect responsible for the conversion of Edgewater Hospital into gorgeous modern apartments that make up Anderson Point.
6: I'm going to be forever connected myself to this building.
3: Originally scheduled to open in 2019, the delay-plagued project encountered hurdle after hurdle that hindered its momentum and tormented the neighborhood.
6: You know, there was a lot of stuff in here. The, the infrastructure, the mechanical infrastructure that had to be removed, that was very complicated. And while we reduced the building down to its sort of just structure itself, it took a lot to get there. And so there's a lot of penthouses and additional buildings that had to be removed to clean it out, if you will. And so that took a lot. And then, of course, with this kind of work, there's a lot of surprises.
3: Demo crews uncovered asbestos, mercury, and other hazardous substances, resulting in multiple setbacks.
6: I can't speak for the neighbors themselves, but I do think that there was a lot of just construction fatigue. It's been two years, especially the first part of that, where the demolition, was the greatest with the two buildings coming down in the west you know like anybody who's embarked on construction you know it's cool at first and then it gets tiring and then after a certain point, it's like get out of here i'm done right and so i think the neighbors are through that point and hopefully kind of see the end and i think in the end you know hopefully the building is a is a thing that makes the neighborhood better
2: former edgewater hospital rooms and offices are now 155 apartments
6: I have to say, as an architect, the building is innocent. The building had nothing to do with any of this malfeasance you know, that went on, right? And I think the original doctor did great stuff. And I think all that bad behavior went with the drywall and tile and all the finishes. And what's left is this sort of innocent, honest structure that was Edgewater Hospital that we then inserted the apartments into. And I think it's a clean environment you know, metaphorically. Sandwiched
2: between Anderson Point and the new luxury homes is the future home of a park. The result is a long awaited new chapter for the former Edgewater Hospital campus.
6: Hopefully it starts a whole new legacy as not so much the, the apartment building that was converted from a hospital, but the apartment building and not so much the recent bad memories of the building, right? And you know what's fascinating for me is, when I see people break into the building and walking through in some of these old videos, I I feel like they're breaking into my home in some ways.
3: Speaking of urban explorers, we actually caught up with the one who made 150 trips inside those walls.
6: I hate to
9: say I'm glad it's gone because I'm really not, but it's interesting because, you know, days go by and I don't really think about it. And for years, I really thought about it constantly. I had a therapist that I talked to pretty strictly about this particular space because it consumed my mind to the point that you know my loving family, my mom and dad, were very, very concerned. It became a problem. It was it was a beautiful problem for me. You know, I think there was a lot of good that came out of it. But uh, since that place is gone, I think I'm a lot more serene. I think my emotions are just more even.
2: He's still into photography and art, but hasn't forgotten about the abandoned Edgewater Hospital.
9: I hope it doesn't just get remembered for as an abandoned building that people broke into and fucked around in for years until it got inevitably demolished. With or without me, that place, I think, would have been something really special for a lot of people. I, I guess it's Dr. Mazel, you know, who founded it. And I, I heard he was really a very compassionate man who really cared about it the good of people. I, I just feel privileged that, you know, I was able to be at the right place in the right time and have my my little story in there because it, it's made a big impact in my own life.
0: So this Edgewater story is a unique story to Chicago and the fraud is disgusting and people went to prison.
3: Journalist Bruce Japson first covered the Edgewater story in 1993.
0: I know for a fact in my reporting when I came to Chicago in 1993, that there are a lot of people that said, that Edgewater Hospital, something's going on up there. Well, what did they do about it? They didn't do anything about it.
2: The questionable things happening at Edgewater Hospital were not a secret.
0: They had to wait for one bad doctor, to agree to wear a wire, and so forth and so on. And now they know, oh yeah, there were some doctors that went to prison because there was bad stuff going on there. Well, they didn't do
2: anything about it. And politicians didn't do anything about it. At the time, it was something whispered about among politicians and the healthcare community. We know that through lawsuits and
0: so forth that you folks have found that where some of the unnecessary tests and procedures, when you do an invasive test on somebody, you stick a catheter in them unnecessarily, you're putting their health at risk, so we know that. But more broadly, you are screwing the government by billing for services that are unneeded or unnecessary or not provided. You're screwing the taxpayer. And you're also screwing maybe future generations. We might be able to afford to provide more benefits to people in this country if people aren't screwing the system.
3: The Edgewater investigations gave Bruce plenty of material during his years at Crane's Modern Healthcare, and the Chicago Tribune. In fact, former Edgewater employees told us that Peter Rogan didn't like Bruce because of all of his articles.
2: When Bruce left the Chicago Tribune, he said he threw away all of his old files, except for one box. That box contained his notes about Edgewater Hospital.
3: He said that if Hillary Clinton won the presidency in 2016, he would have written a book about the hospital.
0: It's a compelling story for sure. But it's also a sad story, too, about how a lot of people took advantage of the health care system.
2: The Edgewater investigation still sticks with FBI agent Cherry Kuhn.
3: It hit home, and I would think, you know, what if this was my grandparents? And I just made it a point to let them all know how important it was to ask questions, you know, especially after this investigation. It's your health, and I think people sometimes forget that. And if anything, I hope people that that listen to this podcast and listen to you will go forward and ask those questions because they should be. You know, if you've got that little part inside of you that's making you wonder, ask. Because too many people didn't.
4: The reason I uh, agreed to this podcast is because I've been in medicine for a long time now.
3: Dr. Parag Madani worked at Edgewater.
4: The constraints and the pressures on physicians now to do things that is not in the best interest of patients that needs to be looked at it needs to be brought out it needs to be stopped somehow you know medicine in this country is going in a direction which i don't think is as good as it was when you had your own doctor that you knew for 20 30 years and i see it now it's just too disjointed and disconnected and profit-driven, and uh, and even, you know, I don't care what you call these non-for-profit hospitals and for-profit, they're all in for the profit. You know, when, it, when a doctor makes X amount of money, but the CEO of the hospital makes 20, 30, 40 times that amount with one-tenth the education, something is wrong with that model. And uh, nobody seems to think anything's wrong with it except maybe me.
2: Denise King was a nurse at Edgewater. Today, she's a teacher
4: when I talk about standards of excellence and legalities, I tell stories of stuff that happened at Edgewater. And one story was the one about this lady who had been sexually assaulted. And one of my students said, come on, Professor King, is that from TV? And I was like, no, stuff happens. And when it's not right, you have to be a voice for your patient. I tell everybody I thank God I had that job and I saw what I did and I experienced what I did because if anything, it just made me a stronger patient advocate. And it made me the nurse I am today.
0: Next time on If The Walls Could Talk.
2: This question came on our very first day of interviews.
4: So if you don't mind my asking, why now? Why reopen these wounds now?
2: It's a good question, and one of many that we'll answer in our next episode, which is our Q&A episode. And you can send us your questions through our website, ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com.
3: Presenting this story would have never been possible without those who shared their time and stories. There was no shortage of tears and moments that nearly made us walk away from this project. We thank those who opened up and shared these dark chapters of their lives. Their stories, memories, tears, and generosity— will stick with us forever.
2: To those who believed in this project and supported us and encouraged us, thank you. From the bottom of our hearts, we're humbled, flattered and forever grateful. And to those who kindly said no or passed on working with us and this podcast, a sincere thank you as well because it made us work that much harder.
0: Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library.
2: Sunrise in Paris by Dan Hennick. Decision by The Tower of Light. Mama, Creep, and Wander by Emmett Fenn. Mirrors and Smoke by Joseph McDade. Auckland by Wyven. Cypher by Wayne Jones. 66 Chicago by The Otis Problem. Suspended in a Dream by Dmitry Belichanko and Lynn Publishing is used under license through Neosounds.
0: This episode was written by Todd Gans. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. Copyright 2021.
2: All rights reserved.